Do you remember Buzz Meeks, Dudley? A disgrace as a police officer. Straight D fitness reports from every CO he ever served under. What about him? Twelve years ago, he was on a vice rouse with Dick Stensland. They questioned Pierce Patchett about a, a blackmail scam. Patchett had Sid Hudgens photographing prominent businessmen with hookers. <laughs> anyway, charges were dropped. Insufficient evidence. You were the supervising officer on that case, and I was wondering if you remember anything about it. What's this all about, Boyle? Part of it has to do with a murder. I've been working with Ed Exley on it. You're a narco, Jack, not homicide. Since when do you work with Edmund Exley? Well, it's a private investigation. Uh, I messed something up. I'm trying to make amends. Don't start trying to do the right thing, Boyle. You haven't had the practice? Buzz Meeks and Dick Stenson. So, uh, what does Exley make of all this? No, I haven't told him yet. I just came straight from the records. to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. My name is Britt Reinhold Hobson. And I'm Joey Rogate. And today... We are on a Brit episode, a Brit choice, and we are going to be talking about 1997's L.A. Confidential, directed by Chris Hansen, starring a bunch of of great actors and two actresses, or two female actors, depending on how you want to say it. Uh, and it's a it's going to be a good conversation between the three of us. But before then, let's get into the recommendations. Uh, I do not know who went first. So uh, which who wants to go first? Who wants to give their recommendation for this week? Well, I'll, I'll go first. Um, and I should say, just for anybody tr- tracking this, you know, we're we're. We're like kind of months ahead of the release, but it's been it's been a while since I've seen your faces. Uh, I know, Brit and Joe. So you know, nice, nice to see you. All the things. Nice to see you. I, I missed you guys. Um, I think, and we we, yeah, I missed you guys too. Uh, so and we pushed back the recording a little bit, but in doing so, I watched I watched a lot of Curtis Hansen films. Um, and I was so I was so positive. I was so sure that I was going to come in. Uh, recommending one of Curtis Hansen's movies, and then I rewatched it, and I was like, "Man, maybe not, maybe not so much." Um, and then I watched another one, and I'd only seen it once, and I actually really, really loved this movie. So my recommendation is Curtis Hansen's film from two thousand, and it's called Wonder Boys. Have either of you seen Wonder Boys? I have not. No. <sighs> You know, I, I actually think I owned it once, but I, de- I don't think I've seen it. So this is, it's really like a slice of life movie. And it, it, uh, 
I, the the broad strokes is it, it stars Michael Douglas who plays a, a professor at a, a I think at like an unnamed university in Pennsylvania and it's he's a he's also a writer and it's this weekend I want to get this oh it's called Word Fest and like a bunch of snooty academic types all get together for this big uh, writing conference and there's a bunch of different relationships at play here and that's really what makes the movie interesting is so that we got Michael Douglas as this professor. Um, who's having uh, an affair with Francis McDormand, who plays the Chancellor, um, and Robert Denny Jr. plays his agent, and Tobey Maguire plays uh, a student of Michael Douglas's, who's like kind of quiet and weird, but also like kind of a young, brilliant mind. And it, like, I, I, I really, I really can't say what the movie is about because it's. I guess if you had to say what the plot is, Michael Douglas wrote this really famous book. And he's trying to follow it up, and it's been seven years, and he hasn't finished it yet. And so, basically, it's like the weekend in which he essentially kind of finishes his book. Um, but it's, it's got, it almost feels like a Coen brother comedy where it's like it's very esoteric, and like you might not get all of the jokes, but if you do, you're just you're kind of in on it. Um, and everybody is really good. I mean, and everybody is really good in the movie. Um, so yeah, I I don't want to say much more because I honestly really recommend people go watch this. I think it's a weird little slice of life movie from, from 2000. So I recommend wonder boys. I love that. That sounds really pleasant. It's a good cast. It's a good cast. Joey, what about you? What are you going to recommend for this week? I've never seen wonder boys. So, you know, I had like an obvious one, but, um, the past two weeks haven't been great. So, but two weeks ago, I went and saw something, and I'm doing. I'm recommending not a great movie, but more for the experience. Um, my son is obsessed with Transformers. I don't know why, but he is obsessed. <laughs> so he wanted to see the new Transformers movies. So me and him went to the movies. We saw Transformers: Rise of the Beasts. My recommend. And listen, it's this. It's it's not a good movie. It's also the second best Transformers movie. It has the stupidest thing I've ever seen in a movie, ever. But. Watching him be excited and talk about it, and he woke up at five a.m. the next night, and he literally called me into his room to ask me a question about the movie. Um, you know, sometimes in him I see things about myself from like, oh man, that that sucks that you have that. Um, but like his excitement and like things sticking with him, I'm really happy that he has it. And like he's like, I get excited. I don't get excited for much, but I get excited about movies. And he was sitting there and he was literally just bouncing when it started. He was so happy. So it was awesome. And I was really happy that like, he was into it and he was so happy and I may have done a bad job of regulating the snacks. He ended up passing out for the second half of it and getting really upset, but um, <laughs> that's okay. It's on me. He was like happy, hungover. I think he just had like an emotional crash and then three pounds of popcorn in his tiny body. But um, it was awesome. And that very stupid movie with Pete Davidson showing why you'd have to, why <laughs> proving that voice acting, you actually have to act and not just talk. Um, it's a memory I'll always have. So I'm going to recommend that because in a not great couple weeks, that's going to stand out in my head for the rest of my life. So that's my recommend. But probably don't see it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cute and also hilarious at the same time. Um, I'm into it. I going to be honest, I probably won't watch it unless my dad wants to watch it. Then all bets are off. I'll watch anything with him. So, you know, it's. I think that's a great recommend. What a great experience. Exactly. And that's what movies are about, right? Again, second best Transformers movie. Stupidest thing I've ever seen in a movie. And I watch bad movies. So 
And both of those things are true. I love it. So, okay, if best if Worst Picture Cast does like a Transformers movie, are you going to have commentary from your son on on that episode? I mean, I'd have to, and he'd just school me. He knows more about Transformers than I think I know about anything. It's unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. It's incredible. Good for him. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, and I was, that was never anything I really gave a shit about. He just kind of got into it. But whatever. It was awesome. I had a blast seeing it. Then he fell asleep when I'm sitting there watching this movie. <laughs> it's pretty fun. All right, Britt. It's now your recommend. Hopefully, hopefully it's a good movie, unlike what I just put people through. I don't know if this is a good movie or if it's just a really fun movie to watch. Uh, the first time I watched it was about 10 years ago. I will be honest. This is one of my husband's favorite movies. And I kind of wanted to watch a movie or recommend a movie that was it, it, that was about something that dealt with LA Confidential. And let's be real. There's a lot going on in LA Confidential. This movie involves cops, hidden identities, and a hospital ward full of newborns in peril. So this week, I am going to recommend John Woo's Hard Boiled. It has excellent action, fantastic production design, and in pure John Woo fashion, no one needs to count their bullets in the shootout scenes. So please, if you have not seen Hard Boiled, go watch it. Chow Young Fat is amazing. And there is just the most bonkers, like, practical explosion ever at the end of the movie. So I highly recommend it. Highly recommend John Woo's Hard Boiled. So that's that's the, that's the one of the two of his big Hong Kong ones I haven't seen. I've seen The Killer, but I haven't seen Hard Boiled. Yeah, Hard Boiled is better that. than The Killer. Like... Well, and, and but what I know about Hard Boiled is that there's a shootout in the hospital and that they practically did that. That when the, I mean, I don't want to, it, it was your recommend, but the practicality oh, no, no, of, I know what you're... of changing out the set to make it look like they changed floors where they didn't change floors. They just quickly redressed the set. That's bananas. That's why wow. I said it has fantastic production design, because how do you do that? It It is seamless. It looks so good. Just watch Hard Boiled if you want a fun, dumb movie That's with, great... with infants. There are a lot of infants in that movie <laughs> at some point. In the hospital? In the hospital, yeah. And uh, let me tell you, they are also involved in the explosion. So, a little baby setting fireworks. Like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. The babies are all just setting up fireworks in the in the <laughs> newborn ward, whatever it's called, the maternity ward. That's it. I don't whatever have kids. It's, I don't yeah, know whatever shit. it's called. <laughs> the baby ward. <laughs> the the baby ward. Um, I guess, man. Let's get into this week's movie. I guess I'm. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I was saying before, I'm a little bit nervous for this one. Not as nervous as I was with Old Boy. You know, Old Boy was my first movie, and let's be real. I probably should have picked a different one to be first because Old Boy was a beast. But L.A. Confidential is also quite a beast so I guess we'll just get into it we'll start out with that film information uh so the cast we have here we have Kevin Spacey as Detective Sergeant Jack Vicente uh, Vince, uh, Vincennes 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 god sorry yeah I'm gonna do that one more time and we'll cut that out um Kevin Spacey as Detective Star uh Detective <laughs> fuck my life I am so annoyed right now 
You nailed that part the first Uh, time. No, it's probably the second beer. (laughs) Kevin Spacey as Detective Sergeant Jack Vincennes. Russell Crowe as Detective Sergeant Bud White. Guy Pearce as Detective Lieutenant Ed Exley. James Cromwell as Captain Dudley Smith. Kim Basinger as Lynn Bracken. Danny DeVito as Sid Hudgens. And David Strathairn as Patchett. It was directed by Curtis Hansen, screenplay by Brian Heg- Brian Hedgeland and Curtis Hansen, based on L.A. Confidential by James Elroy. The cinematography was by Dante Spinetti, edited by Peter Honus, and the music was by Jerry Goldsmith. Did I miss anybody? Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, it's a it's a huge cast, and there's a lot of ancillary people that people would know from things. Um, but no, I think that's yeah. good. I think that's good to just start there. Right. I was like, if I start adding in all of the small parts, um, it, it's going to just take up half the episode to say because this this movie has, I would say, too many characters. Um, not compared to the book, but but it does have quite a few. So with accolades, this film was actually pretty lauded at most of the um, the film awards of the season. At the Academy Awards, it was up for quite a few. It was in the same year as Titanic, though, so it really didn't win very many. But I will say that it won Best Supporting Actress, and it also won Best Screenplay. I do have to say that I think the cinematography was incredible, and it was up for Best Cinematography, and I feel like that's that's a pretty big bummer that um that Dante didn't win that one in my opinion just because rewatching this I was pretty impressed with what he was able to do with this film oh I I mean I I couldn't I could not agree anymore with you um and it, it is it's you know when you kind of brush up against a juggernaut film of of something like Titanic it's like this is bound to happen but that's not the like We'll probably talk about this more as we go through, but cinematography is only one of the awards that it probably deserved to win that it it didn't because of Titanic. Yeah, I I mean, Titanic is fine. I like Titanic enough, but I don't know if I'm going to put Titanic up against L.A. Confidential. I probably am going to watch L.A. Confidential over Titanic, but maybe I'm giving my hand away too too early here. Uh, At the the British Academy Film Awards... Oh, sorry. No, what were you saying, Joey? I didn't hear it. We'll get to it. We'll get to what is what I'm. We'll get to it when we talk about cinematography and when we get into the bulk of it, because he that may have won an award for okay. me in our uh, categories. Oh, perfect. Okay, great. Uh, so at the uh, British Academy Film Awards, it won Best Editing and Best Sound, which I found really interesting. Again, this was up for everything and was not going to win anything due to the company that it kept that year. And at uh, the Cannes Film Festival, it was up for the, the Palme d'Or, which it did not win. Two films won that year, and uh, it, this was not one of them. So <laughs> a lot of accolades saying, you did a really great job, but we're not going to give you that award, even though you might have deserved it. It's the close but not cigar, hey close but no cigar year. It, it truly is. I was looking, when I was looking up, I was like, it, this is up for everything, but nobody's willing to actually give it anything, which is... Well, do, do you know who liked it? The who? LA Film Critics Association. L, LA, repping LA. I mean, LA was like, give me LA all day. 
Apparently, even though it's about violent white men, they're like, even better. Let's continue to to watch movies about violent white men. All right. So this, um, so friends, was this inducted into the National Film Registry? Yes. I mean, I would think so. It was, in fact, inducted into the National Film Registry, uh, Registry in 2015. You know what other movies were inducted in there in 2015? Tell us, Brit. <laughs> Top Gun, Ghostbusters, and The Shawshank Redemption. What a year! It was a pretty big year, yeah. So, and it made sense to me. I was like, okay, I can see it with these films. That's fine with me. Do we think that this movie is on the IMDb Top 250? I feel like it has to be. I, I would think absolutely yes, right? Like, I, I purposely didn't look, but it has to be yes. Okay, so so I'm, I'm going to switch it up a little bit. What number do you think it is? Because yes, it is. So where do you think, like, you can give me, like, between, you know, like, 50 and 80 or something. But but where do you think it lies? Because it, it is on the list. I'm going to say it's like like halfway, like 125, 140-ish. That, that, I was going to say something like that too because it, it's a great movie, but also, you know, it's not Joker, so it can't be that high. Exactly. So, you know. it, exactly. It, it doesn't have it the esteem of a Joker. Yeah, you're right. Joker is at 78 now, just so you know. I did look it up today um, when we're recording. So it's at 78, right behind Das Boot. Um, but you were both very close. Uh, oh, <laughs> it, sweet. Where? LA Confidential is at 116. Oh, perfect. Um, okay. At 117, we have Die Hard. And at 115, we have Metropolis. So it's kind of a weird, weird mix around it. But, you know, I'm going to go with it. That sounds That's like a good cool. movie watching. I know, right? Yeah, that's, I, that's... I would I would be into that that night, though it would be a kind of like tonal whiplash, but that's fine. <laughs> Whatever, I'll take like it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, did either of you I I because I always have to do something chaotic, I didn't look up any any reviews of this movie at all because I actually just ended up going really deep on James Elroy for some reason because, man, he's an interesting character. Very problematic character, but very interesting. Did either of you look up any reviews about this movie? I I did. Um, and specifically, I looked up Ebert's second review of it. Um, he did like a kind of a, a post-mortem, like a little over 10 years later, sort of reviewing the film. Um, and I just, you know, and, you know, and his reviews are pretty lengthy, so I'm not going to read much, but just the last... Um, says LA Confidential is described as film noir and so it is but it is more unusually for a crime film it deals with the psychology of the characters for example in the interplay between the two men who are both in love with Basinger's hooker it contains all of the elements of police action but in a sharp a sharply clipped more economical style the action exists not for itself but to provide an arena for personalities the dialogue is lovely not the semi-parody of a lot of film noir but the words of serious people trying to reveal or conceal themselves um which you know in a certain i i mean in terms of getting at it like it's it's film noir but it's like film noir plus it's both really riffing is, yeah. on and expanding upon in the same time yeah it is such an interesting the the tone of the film is so so different because the dialogue is is so heightened it's not necessarily something you would hear um 
day to day, but there is a very realistic quality to the acting and to the way the world feels. Um, I, I actually really, I really like that review. Thank you for show, sharing it with us. You're welcome. <laughs> I guess, so, okay, I was trying to write a summary for this movie because I thought, like, we really do need to discuss the summary in order to talk about this movie. But I couldn't do it because you cannot. This movie is so expansive and there is, one might say, too much going on that it's difficult to write a summary without just writing the entire synopsis. So before we begin our discussion, I will say this is my personal summary of L.A. Confidential. L.A. Confidential follows three LAPT detectives as they separately work to unravel intertwining conspiracies linked to their own departments. And that is what I came up with as my good, yes, succinct, concise, succinct. No spoilers, but you know exactly what you're getting into with it. Well done, because this is really hard to do with this movie. So, honestly, knocked it out of the park. Thank you. I was pretty proud of that one. I spent a good 15 minutes trying to write that sentence. I don't think there's another way to do that without getting into, like, chaos. To be perfectly honest, this whole, re-watching it now, this whole movie is a bit like ordered chaos because the plot elements are just kind of all over the place, but in the best possible way. I don't know. Where do we want to start with this this film? Do either of you have a something you're just really excited to talk about? Well, I, I I don't I wouldn't say this is the thing I'm most excited to talk about, but you know when we talk about the fact that this is you know this is a, a film noir made in 1997, and so you know when you think about film noir, there are certain things that might spring to mind. One of that is voiceover, and a lot of the times in in like early film noir from like the 30s and 40s, the VO it's like the the character's inner thing, like you know, she came into the room and she, you know, the the wind blew through her hair, and it's like, okay, cool, cool, yeah, whatever. But really, there's only a limited VO in this, and when it is, it's Devito like typing his his um his paper uh, for Hush Hush, right? And so the VO to me is practical because it's not like it's coming out of nowhere. It's like, oh, this is the next issue of Hush Hush, and it, but it helps further the plot along. And so, I again, it's this idea of riffing on the aesthetics and the qualities of film noir, but in a way that makes more sense. And, and so I just, I lead off with that because what a way to remind us that we're in a film noir, but to make it practical, to keep it in the world. It's, it, it really is, especially that opening. I feel like it's perfect and it sets us up for the world they're trying to build with LA confidential. I will say I did read the book this time around um, because I, I love this movie. So I thought I will absolutely read the book. Hmm. Let me tell you, that is a 17-hour audiobook that is Damn. an epic that spans over 10 years. It's a lot. We'll get into it. But they do have throughout it um, articles from Hush Hush and, and articles about things that are happening. That's how they they describe a lot of the years that nothing notable happens. And by nothing notable happens, notable things happen, but we don't need to 
understand why somebody was, you know, like understand a murder that happens. We just need to know how they executed someone and that Exley put them in in prison type of a thing. And I loved how they incorporated that into the movie because it was a callback to the book. And it works really well in the book, in my opinion. I really enjoy those chapters. So it was it was nice to see that, especially at the beginning when we have this whole mafioso thing that doesn't really come back. (laughs) Like we hear about it briefly, then it kind of comes back and you go, oh, that that's what that character is kind of doing with drugs, maybe. And then we kind of forget it and go to the shootout. Right. So it's it is convoluted, but at least they tried to be stylish with the convoluted plot. I, yeah, I mean, just having Danny DeVito talking to his readers as he types is such um, a cool way to get information out quickly, move it along. It's it's good, but it doesn't harp on it. Like when he talks about this detective, that detective, then it moves to the next thing, I think. I really liked it because, you know, in those old noirs, that always like a thing I kind of laugh at a little bit. So it, just, it was great here. I loved it. I just love Danny DeVito in this. I think he was perfect casting. Like he brought such joy when he was was on on screen as his very one note character that character could have been just forgettable or even annoying and i just was happy every time he was on screen yeah i really enjoyed him could have been the least likable character and then you just don't care at the end what happens to him like it's just danny devito just create making more out of what's there and it's it's just it's great right like this little scumbag guy but you're still kind of rooting for him to get a win the book is actually, you know, since I was already speaking at the bu- about the book, like I said, the book is spans over 10, cent- 10 centuries, 10 years. And um, there are over 100 characters in the book. It's expansive. Honestly, I, I it, for anybody that if you're hello, Aaron, I know you haven't watched the movie, but you will listen to this podcast. Um, if you haven't watched the movie and you want to read the book, I actually would suggest watching the movie first because the book is, you have to, I took notes during it because I kept thinking, okay, wait, which character was that? I have to go back and forth. It is vastly different than the movie. They really did streamline the plot points. And I think that worked in favor for the film. If they had tried to keep every single thing that was, that they cut it, it wouldn't have worked at all. And I will get into those those few differences that I think are important. There are many, many more than the ones I'm going to note. But I will just say that L.A. Confidential was written by James Elroy. He's an American crime fiction writer and he's an essayist. He's written many books and essays. Um, but I actually think that the L.A. Quartet is probably his most famous work. It is um, L.A. Confidential is actually the third book in the L.A. Quartet, and that includes The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz. Have either of you read anything by James Elroy, or do you know much about him? Um, I've read The Black Dahlia once, and um, something I mean, somewhat newer comparatively, I think Crime Wave it's called. Uh, I have not read anything by James Elroy, uh, but I will say that there is a, a bit of a bit of a hypocrisy about James Elroy. Uh, if you watch any of the old, like, post-movie making up featurettes, he's like, oh, just such a thrill that they made it into a movie and hop ba up ba and he's on the train to talk good things about it. And then, uh, like, months ago, he came out and he said, well, now that Curtis Hansen's dead, I can tell everybody how stupid and bad this movie is. And I'm like, hey, you know what, James Elroy? Oh. Not cool, dude. Not cool. Oh, yeah. I totally yep. agree. 
I actually, I'll just go ahead. I have, um, I have a whole section that says Elroy's thoughts on LA Confidential because <laughs> I ran across the same thing and I thought, wow, this is a far cry from what you thought. And I think it's fair for him to say that it was restitched and reworked because they did, but they, I do believe that they made a filmable movie out of an unfilmable work. I do not understand how this work could have been made any differently. But what he said was, my plot lines were reduced and restitched. My time frame was compressed. My love stories were retriangulated. I created a world on paper. Curtis Hansen recreated it for film. It was my world, but his world, but my world to the point where the claims of ownership were blurred and lost. My dramatic sense and Curtis's dramatic sense were always at odds. He also went on to say some really nasty things about Kim Basinger and um, and Russell Crowe that I did not agree with. And I kind of thought he was just... It's one thing to decide after the fact. Like, it's fine if he doesn't like it, but he didn't need to go slander it the way that he did. I, I thought it was pretty nasty, to be honest. And I I did watch a lot of documentaries about Elroy, and I have some pretty intense opinions about Elroy. I think he's a great writer. I I think his character, there's, there's some issues going on there. Like... He's he's a pretty tough hang. I don't think I'd want to hang out with that guy. Ditto. <laughs> I'm with you. Bad guy. Bad guy. That's a tough move. So, okay, I'll I'll go into this. And and this is this is um I will say right now, um this we're going to deal with some some very disturbing issues in this movie, like in this discussion. So I'm letting you know right now, if you have any issues with sexual assault or anything murder, you probably shouldn't listen to this podcast because we're going to have to talk about that in conjunction with this movie. So James Elroy's mother was raped and murdered when he was 10 years old. Did either of you come across that in your research? Uh, no, 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 I, did I didn't. He um, so he had an incredibly complicated relationship with his mother and he growing up, he idolized his father who hated his mom and also basically told his son that his mom was a sex worker, um, even though as far as I could tell, she was not. And um, he decided to hate his mom because he wanted to prove that he loved his father. Later on in life, he began looking into his mo- his mother's unsolved death and her life, and he was able to unravel the complicated relationships that he had with her. He also is self like self proclaimed hypersexual, which is which makes sense. When I was reading the book, there were a lot of moments where I was like, "This is a really uncomfortable thing to read," as he's describing like relations between Lynn and Bud, and. I will say, I think LA Confidential is an incredible book, but it, it it's a hard read. Like, I, I do not suggest you read it if you are not comfortable with people using really derogatory language and offensive lang- language towards people of um, that are not white. Um, I would not read it if you are uncomfortable with um, anything to do with sexual assault, murder, extreme violence. It's... It is a pretty intense book, and I do think that the cuts that they made for the film made sense and were necessary, in my opinion. But I also think that, like, Elroy's own past really did dictate what he was going to write about at some point in his life. He was also really obsessed with, like, true crime and the Black Dahlia. So 
Are we ready to go into a couple of differences before we even start? Because the thing is, these differences are like, they're not even going to, sh- they don't even show up in the movie. I just wanted to let you both know because I wasn't sure if you'd read the book or not. And it's a 17 hour audiobook, So like, it's totally fine if I'm the only person who had time to, to listen to this one. Well, definitely. I think that's all you, Britt. But yeah, sure. Of course, I want to know some of the differences. <laughs> so, um, so Dick Stenslin, Dick Stenslin dies in the book, but he's not actually a part of the Night Owl murders. He is um, completely he's fired for Bloody Christmas. He murders somebody. Ed Exley puts him in jail and he is then executed. He then leaves all his money to Bud, who uses it to go to college. So that's one big change. Like, humongous change. Ed Exley's dad is alive. And he becomes like a construction mogul who is working with a Walt Disney-esque man at a... Who is building a new theme park called Dream a Dreamland. And the main mascot of said place is Moochie Mouse. Um, Ed's father made a career solving a particularly horrible killer who was murdering children and creating a body from their limbs. He was called the Frankenstein murderer. And later on, Ed Exley realizes that his father did not, in fact, solve this case, that the killer was still out there, who, in fact, is the son of this Walt Disney-esque mogul. Inez, the woman who is brutally assaulted by the the men in uh, the interrogation room, uh, She actually is a huge character in the book. She is Ed's girlfriend after he finds her, but she is actually in love with Bud. So he hates Bud because she is sleeping with Bud. Um, But then she dies by suicide because she's very close with Ed's father and Dream a Dreamland creator. And they all decide to commit suicide together because of the fact that they covered up the Frankenstein murders. These are just a couple of the things that are different in the book. Um, so the last thing I wanted to say was Jack Vincennes is following a slew of lewd pornography, which is also in the movie. But that in turn leads to um, it It ties in with Bud, who is trying to solve a bunch of um, murders of sex workers, which in turn leads to Ed Exley's investigation, which in turn leads to his father's cover up. So as I, I think, as you can see from what I've I've said, they really streamlined the plot of this movie because they had to. There's no way that they could involve every single one of these into a two hour film and make it palatable. And that's why I kind of feel like Elroy's. I, I understand where he like that. He's where he's coming from, where it was reduced and restitched. But I think it was actually a good thing. Like it needed to be condensed you have to what else is this going to piece otherwise this turns into three movies and then you have like you know one movie that's great then the next movie comes out a few years later that nobody knows exists because this actor got too big this actor does this and it becomes a disaster like this movie's great you know what your books that book good or not somebody had to change it shut up well and it it just it's a reminder that like in and obviously books go through editing processes and, and there's a whole revision phase of it and people are help along the way, but essentially writing a book is a fair, it's a fairly singular act. Right. And so understandably Elroy taking ownership and, and, and maybe even some, some faults with the movie that was made is one thing, but 
and and we're talking about how they streamlined it and i don't there are so many there are so many candidates for unsung hero in this movie um in front of and behind the camera and this isn't mine but um was it don uh is it don hennis uh i'm gonna i'm getting his name wrong um the editor uh peter sorry don peter honus um the i i I rewatched the movie again today um and almost at almost nine minutes in you've met russell crowe guy pierce kevin spacey um uh james cromwell danny devito and kim base kim basinger kim basinger comes in at eight minutes and 50 seconds when she walks into the liquor store and it's like and we've cross-cut all of these people and especially with the three police officers you essentially get who they are broad strokes right from the beginning right russell crowe is more of a hands-on um defender of women uh kevin spacey is definitely about his own persona I, i'm using the actor i'm sorry about that uh jack vincennes is way more about his persona and his image and ed Exley is climbing he wants to be the youngest detective lieutenant on the lapd and it's like we get it so fast and if we're doing James Elroy's book, it's like, we're not going to get that much in eight minutes and 50 seconds. That's not that's not going to happen. The other thing is that it's all not chronological. There's actually a really great YouTube channel that I found called Why the Book Wins when I was trying to find a timeline for this book because I read it. I found myself going back like to separate chapters because I, I was like, OK, I listened to that. But I feel like I didn't understand what I was listening to. So I need to go back again. And this was after I'd watched the movie even like I watched. I was too excited to watch this movie. So I watched it before reading the book. And so luckily, Why the Book Wins does a sequential timeline of the book, which is not how the book is written. It's all out of order. You have like no idea where it's going until the last like two hours of it. And it was super helpful it's a great it's a great youtube channel if you want to if you want to watch something about books that are made into movies but it was really nice to see somebody that actually took the time to put it together it took her 30 minutes and she didn't even go into all of it she just did the major plot points and it it's just too it I, personally i feel like it's too much for one book did i love the book yes i did will i be reading more james elroy even though i kind of think he's an asshole yes i will because i i enjoyed the book but man it was it was kind of it was one of those things where i felt like you're doing this because you can not because it's serving the story you know, that's my that's my piece on the book. So I guess we can now jump into we can jump into this film. You know what? Are, oh, I do have one one thing. One thing I forgot to say. Um, Bud dropkicks someone in the book and they didn't put it in the movie. And I'm really disappointed. We got four dropkicks in in a, in a previous police procedural and none in L.A. Confidential. And I think that's just a missed opportunity. Like Russell Crowe, I think it says, is definitely a great drop kicker. He's got to be a great drop kicker. I, you'd have I mean, to of think all, so. right? I mean, I don't know if there's anybody in a movie we've watched other than we've seen Song Kang Ho drop kick, and he does a great job. But like, who else would be of the movies we've watched? Who else could be a great drop kicker? Like, could Emma Stone drop kick someone? I don't know. Uh, no, probably mm. great. Um, not as great as Gosling's, but. <laughs> oh, no, I, I actually I, I think maybe she'd have really good, really good form. Yeah, not a lot of power behind it, but the form would be glorious. 
<laughs> I bet she has like precision though. She could really get like on the nose or something, break someone's nose. That's a good call. Yeah. I, I like what you said about the. Oh, what about Bob Hoskins' dropkick? Uh, ooh. <laughs> That's more like a cannonball. I love it. I'm, I'm into the cannonball dropkick. That sounds great. Quite effective. Could be. Could be pretty good. All right. Let's get into our first thoughts of LA Confidential. My first thought was LA Confidential is a movie that should not work. Like it, with the plot points, with everything that's going on, with the amount of characters, this movie shouldn't work. But honestly, I think it's really good. Well, and you got to, you have to add on top of that, that it got pretty much no financial backing and um, like a $15 million budget. And granted, you know, Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe weren't quite the stars that they would become, but that's crazy. And and again, another, uh, you know, another group of people that you could, and maybe I don't mean to step on toes that this is anybody's, um, but another group of people that you could certainly give um, the unsung hero thing to is um, uh, Janine, uh, is it Opawal and Jay Hart, who were the production designers, because yep. they had to practically My find My unsung heroes lo- right there. there. <laughs> I was watching it today. I was watching the scene uh, when they, um, it's, it's when, um, plot point, spoiler, uh, when Russell Crowe shoots the guy, uh, and then frames, puts the gun in his hand. And, uh, so I should start using character names, Bud White and Ed Exley have the argument outside and you can see the houses outside. Um, but they all look period appropriate and they're not, you can definitely tell it's not a, a soundstage and just just practical locations, practical locations. What a thought. Who would have thunk it, right? Real places that look period appropriate. It was just marvelous. I totally agree. I think that this is like a master class in how to utilize what is given to you instead of trying to build around what you think you want. If they had all the money in the world, sure, they could have built all of these locations, but these locations already existed. And the fact that Janine and her crew was able to find everything for this, except for the Victory Hotel, which they built, was absolutely amazing. Like, it, it's just, it it's so good. Everything feels so lived in. It feels so perfect. It really is. It's it's. It's a it's masterful. What Janine did, I I can't even I can't even begin to imagine what it would what a stressful time it would be trying to find those locations. But I bet every single time she found one, she felt like a total success. You know. Of course, big time. Yeah, I mean, I wish yeah, I was. So I wish I was that's that good my at anything. Unsung hero, so. It's a great unsung hero. Um, I've a. I don't I don't expect any of us to have the answer to this, but I want to I want to pose kind of an open ended question and just get broad strokes, um, because I think my one of my my first thought when I think of Valley Confidential and I, I'm, I'll phrase it as a question. Is this a is this like a is this a Mount Rushmore ensemble film of the 90s? Is this one of the best ensemble casts of, of the ooh, 1990s? Ooh, ooh. I mean, I have to say yes. Wow. I mean. That's a great question. Damn, I wish I prepared that at all. But I mean, it has to be right, especially for like just, what was given with what the the outcome. Like it. Oh man, I mean, Varsity Blues is clearly number one. <laughs> uh, 
those were the exact reactions I wanted. Um, it's a great question. <laughs> Good, you got them. And I'm very happy with that. And and that's what I mean. It's like I don't I don't expect anybody to have like what are the best four ensembles of the '90s. But like, I could not help it. Like every time we were in a scene I just felt I felt in such good hands I mean even like you know I, you know we only see David Strathairn for a few scenes but he's great one of my favorite like kind of that guy character actor uh, character actors Ron Rifkin is the DA and I think like he's when he's in there so being good. yeah he's snooty and he's clipping his nose hair he's like unless you came in here to wipe my ass he's like oh I was like oh this guy is like perfect for this role I just I, I don't know man across I, I feel like across the board everybody is just given it ah it's so good there's really only one scene where i think an actor kind of wasn't great and it's that bar scene where dudley uh, cromwell he kind of reiterates what we learned visually from the first few minutes like you spoke about and he's like you do this and you you do this it's like all right we, we know all of that i don't know why this is how you have to give the gun back because you're clearly a scumbag so I didn't like that, but otherwise everybody was great at everything, and I love the 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 chemistry throughout. And with that many people, so hard to pull off, and they did such a good job. I will say that it's not my favorite scene, but I do like that scene. It's lifted straight from the book, and um, in the book, Dudley's actually the bad guy in the prior book. So you start out the the whole book in the prologue knowing that Dudley is the bad guy. So so that whole like twist in the movie doesn't exist because and that's not how Jack dies. Um but anyways like it, it, it we already know that Dudley is is a crooked cop before that scene. Um and I guess we know because he talks to Ed Exley about it. And you know it was like would you shoot a man in the back and plant evidence? Um which I'm like, wow, fuck you, man. Let's maybe not do that, but this is also why I don't work in don't work in this department because I would be really bad at that. Um, but but it, it is. I just wanted to say that that is pulled from the book. Also, I do want to say I didn't forget a list. I just have a different idea for a list today. So I apologize. But we're doing lists later. So just just keep, to let you know, it wasn't like your, it wasn't like you framed Roger Rabbit. Hey. I just didn't have a list. I do have keep one. It, but keeping us in your, suspense. I'm, I like it. Yeah, yeah I, you know, that's what I do. Hair flip. She's Googling lists um, right now. <laughs> I actually have three lists with movies, but I thought this would be more interesting. So that's why I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it later. Anyways, I love it. I love keeping me- us on our toes. That's, that's, that's a great hosting job right there. Yeah, you know, I'm not nervous at all for this one because this is just a really... Y'all, this is a really big movie. Yeah. <sighs> Well, and it's I, a big one. It, I, yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah, there's so many things like, and I feel like, so the first time I watched it, uh, for the, for, for the recording, you know, I was taking more specific notes and, um, and bigger, bigger theme notes and, and things like that. But then like today I was catching like little things that I really, really liked, like that didn't, didn't need to be in the movie, but I really liked it. So there's, um, this is just one example because I could I could do dozens of these. So um, it's after Bloody Christmas and we're getting the sort of the interrogations of each of our three cops. Right. So we see Bud White. He's not going to do anything. We see Ed Exley. He's all game. Right. Uh, and then but we haven't seen Kevin Spacey come in. Yet. And, <laughs> right. Ed Exley tells the D.A. And yeah, the commissioner, like, here's what you got to do. So then he goes behind the like the uh, interrogation glass and he's watching the whole thing happen. 
And there's this great, there's an over the shoulder shot of, um, of, of Exley looking at the, the sort of the table of people and, um, and Jack Vincennes. And it's when, um, so the, the commissioner says something like, when you're done, you can go back on the show and you can see, um, you can see Ed look as like, 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 oh, I can't wait to see his reaction. And it's such a small thing that like somebody else could have easily just like cut immediately and gone right to Jack Vincennes. But we see him turn. We see that Ed Exley is actively watching the scene and it is a small detail, but it is those kind of details that make this movie just wonderful. I feel like, and I th- feel like we can talk about this now because we're discussing Ed Exley. I feel like nobody talks about how great Guy Pierce is in this movie, but he is phenomenal. I, I mean, everybody talks about Russell Crowe. Everybody talks about Kevin Spacey. People talk about John, James Cromwell. They are, they're all great. But honestly, I do think that Guy Pierce kind of makes this movie for me. I, I think he's such an interesting character. He is my, uh, he's obviously not my unsung hero, but he's really, really good. And the fact that they took a chance on him because he was not a, he was not a star. Neither him nor Russell Crowe were were big name actors at the time. And the fact that they took a chance on two Australian actors to be LA cops in the fifties, incredible. Um, I mean, the director really, really knew what he was doing in this movie. I've seen a couple other movies by by this director and I didn't love them to be perfectly honest it's kind of one of those things where I was like was this a fluke was this just his the best ever can we talk about Curtis Hanson for a little bit because oh my god yes we can I watched sorry I just moved no this is great okay so I now now I know I I recommended Wonder Boys so I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you the movies of his I watch and I just want to just we'll keep this short I promise have either of you heard of or seen Bad Influence I've heard of Bad Influence, but I've never watched it. Definitely never seen it. Okay. Um, uh, I'm already forgetting the lead's name. Oh, no, James Spader. James Spader is the lead oh. in this movie, and he's like a, 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 like a, a buttoned-up analyst of some kind, and he's, like, he's about to get married, but you can tell like he's not happy in his life, and he, he randomly runs into Rob Lowe, and Rob Lowe is this, like, kind of semi-con artist man who uh, starts getting James Spader to do things that he shouldn't be doing and then Rob, Rob Lowe starts messing with his life because he can because he has like ever, he has something against James Spader it's not a great thriller and it's very much of the early 90s um, okay so that's that's bad influence did either of you two revisit the very disturbing uh, the hand that rocks the cradle I didn't revisit it, but I did really want to, especially after our discussion last week where I was like, doesn't she breastfeed the baby at some point? That's not her it, child. It is. Okay, Britt, that movie is so fucked up. There is there is no <laughs> way. I, I don't think you could make that movie today. I was I was ge- like genuinely disturbed and like I it was ooh, it was okay. weird. So, so I do know that in that movie, there is a whole part about a gynecologist that is is abusing his patients. And that does happen like that. That is something that has been proven to happen. There are many, many amazing gynecologists out there. I'm obviously not saying that that happens like happens all the time. But but it is people have gone to court over it, you know, like. But it's 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 that it's the it's the it's uh uh, what's her name? Um, Rebecca DeMornay breastfeeding the kid that's not hers. Yeah. And it's also, and and I got to say, it's also Ernie Hudson playing oh, somebody yes. with a mental disability. And it is. It, oh, it's shit. Not that's good. right. It's not good. I gang. like Ernie Hudson, but no, maybe we shouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, 
So, so that was the hand that rocks the cradle. Uh, I rewatched The River Wild with Meryl and uh, Kevin Bacon. I don't think I've seen this one. I, again, I just, I think I watched like maybe two movies. I, I read of R- his. River Wild I watched like last summer. For, I don't remember why, but um, for the first time in a very long time. It's and and then and that's I think the River Wild is the the movie he makes that's the closest to when he makes LA Confidential and then the movie I thought was going to be my recommend and I'll, I'll stop here with the Curtis Hanson talk was Eight Mile um because I actually used to really like it and then I watched it I was like eh, it's not that great I really I still love the last ten minutes I still love the last three battle rap scenes because there's just I so mean, much raw fucking not? energy behind it um but the movie like kim basinger who won an oscar five year kim basinger is putting on like a southern accent and she's like a trailer trash yeah, why? it's tough. just not good why it's... okay why are why in movies when people are like and i don't i don't like the term trailer trash but i will use it here when people are trailer trash i i do have quotations for everybody listening why do they always go with a southern accent even if you're in somewhere like let's say seattle we have no accents here. I know. We, I should, you know what I mean? Like, I should say ugh. that the movie takes place in Detroit, so it doesn't really make a lot of sense. No, it's a terrible choice for the accent, but yeah, it's it's on par with all other trailer, prop, trailer-related movies. But I loved that movie when it came out. I have no desire to ever watch it again mm-hmm. in my life because I just know it's one of those things. It's just going to ruin past Joey's experience. I mean, well, you know what? You sh- I think you should you should rewatch it. Go back and rewatch Eight Mile and see see how how you think about it today. I I didn't rewatch it. I've watched it once in my life, and I was like, I gotta be honest. I think I think I'm good. I think that's all I need I, to watch. I saw it twice in theaters. I needed to see B Rabbit take himself down twice. <laughs> I just love Brittany Murphy, so like I'll, I'd watch anything for her at that point. Mm, poor Brittany Murphy. Yeah, I, I will say, I, like I will say, Brittany, Brittany Murphy's energy in the movie is great, but she is a bizarre dancer. She dances in the movie a little bit, and it is it incredible. Is, <laughs> she is just, she is in her own world. It's amazing. That does not surprise me whatsoever. I haven't seen the movie in a really long time, so I do not remember her dancing, but now I really, like, I feel like I should go watch it right this moment. So that I can understand how bizarre it is. I love a good bizarre dance because, I, I mean, I, I'm a pretty bizarre dancer when I'm not choreographed. If you ask my husband, I'm all knees and elbows when I'm at a wedding. So <laughs> maybe maybe I have a kindred spirit in this other Brittany. So, okay. Talking about Kim Basinger. She won Best Supporting Actress for this movie. Which is pretty amazing. That year, at the Oscars, it was 1997, we, uh, we have quite a few people in, in the mix. So I'm going to read off to you the people that were nominated, and I kind of want to know what you all feel about this. So we have Kim Basinger for LA Confidential. We have Joan Cusack for in and out We have Minnie Driver for Goodwill Hunting. We have Julianne Moore for Boogie Nights. And we have Gloria Stewart from Titanic. Do we think that Kim Basinger should have won? That wasn't my list. I'm just letting you know. That's not my no. list for today. <laughs> Personally, no. Man, she's really good in this. But 
and I really like her, and it's the best thing she did, you know, as an actress, um, you know, there's her Batman, but uh, I, I gotta say no. I mean, I feel like a lot of people think that it was probably like a Lifetime Achievement Award, kind of like people could say Jamie Lee Curtis got in the most recent round of the Academy Awards. Was I really excited that a Scream Queen got an Oscar? Absolutely. Do we think she was the best choice? Not necessarily. I I personally would have gone with Stephanie Hsu myself, but that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. But for Best Supporting Actor, honestly, I think Minnie Driver was incredible in Good Will Hunting. Like, like top tier career making performance in Goodwill Hunting. And, and when I went back to look at this, I thought, wow, that's surprising to me that that Kim Basinger won over Mini Driver personally. But that's just my own personal opinion. Yeah. I mean, no, no, no. I, I think. Min- Sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm between Mini Driver for Goodwill Hunting and Julianne Moore and Boogie Nights. Like, that's where I'm. Yeah, that's where I'm struggling with. But um, I think Goodwill Hunting deserves all the love in the world and doesn't get enough. And Boogie Nights is fucking I fantastic. And I, I love Julianne more, but I don't know. But it, it's between those two. I'm not I'm not ready to commit, but probably yeah, go Julianne like, more if I have to. I think for me, it's Solid. the kind of thing where it's like it's whatever I, I would pick Julianne more now. But I know I say that because I've seen Boogie Nights more recent than Goodwill Hunting, and I guarantee the next time I watch Goodwill Hunting, if you ask me this, I'd probably well probably Mini Driver because it'll be the freshest in my head. But those two, they it's full it's they're fully like dramatic like what they get to do. Both of them get to really they get to be funny, charming, sad. They get to they had they get all yeah. the emotional beats. It's yeah, both of those two are great. And, and I'm not taking away from Kim Basinger's performance because no. I think she's beautiful. She's really good in LA Confidential, but Lynn is a one-note character like all of the females in this movie. Uh, the the two actually no, there are four females in this movie. There is a woman who who is murdered, so there's her mother who's just annoying because that's Holy, how she was directed. You. Oh my god. She Ooh. sucks. She's, she does and but that's how she was directed to be so it's like okay thank you very much you didn't want to give this you didn't want to give her an opportunity to be a grieving mother you just wanted her to be obnoxious great it's i see rat. where you're coming you from fucking idiot and then we have inez who had a, an incredible amount of like she had an, she had a huge part in the movie but she also or not in the movie sorry inez who had a huge part in the book is just completely taken out of this this film even though she was the one character that was not white in the book that had any 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 type of story and then we have Lynn and both Inez and Lynn are defined by sex and and their storylines are are completely around sex and sexual abuse and that's really disappointing to me so anyways I just wanted to put that out there that the the few women in this movie are are very poorly represented but I I think give Inez some credit though because her line and her story doesn't serve the purpose she thought it did but it does help Edmund come out so her her lie does help Edmund and white get where they need yes. to go so it's not like she was a useless but, character so she she did do something like without her without ed talking to her about the lie it sped things up for him i i think she plays a good role 
That's true, but I also would like to have female characters who were not just in the movie to progress the the male storylines. Um, you know what I mean? Like it's just that's difficult to watch when you only introduce characters so that other so that when you only introduce women or or anyone who is not a white male in order to progress that man's story. It's it's difficult to watch. It doesn't mean I don't like the movie. I just feel like it's it's something that they could have maybe made a little more interesting. It's it's tricky in a movie though where it's you know nineteen was it fifty is it fifties? Yep. I, yeah. I'm just well. First of all, I'm just asking this clarification. Okay. Nineteen fifty one is when it starts. Oh. Nineteen fifty one to nineteen fifty two, technically in the in the movie, because in nineteen fifty one, Bloody Christmas happened, and that's an actual thing that happened, which I have a bit about. If you guys want to hear some really disturbing stuff about police brutality later. <laughs> I'll leave that up to you. I can't say that I'm I'm itching to hear anything that that, but I I could I could only imagine, <laughs> given the uh, systemic problems that we've seen with police, right? It, until today, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can tell you a fun fact about um, L.A. police in general. Now, when is people it a, started... is it a fun fact or is it a depressing fact? It's a fucked up fact, is what oh, I would tell you. <laughs> um. So when. People were like flocking to L.A. and L.A. was growing. The LAPD decided that they needed more people. They needed to recruit more people for the LAPD so that they could keep people safe. And you know who they recruited? They recruited Southern white men who had been in the military. And they did it specifically so that they could continue to um, impose white values on people and keep all anybody who was not white down. That was a fun research moment for me. I'm saying that sarcastically because it was really disturbing to read because that's obviously still a thing that happens today. Yeah. Well, and I love I there is something so and watching this movie now, uh, you know, you in the movie, you hear like the commissioner and the DA talk about like the new LAPD. We're going to move to our new location. We're going to have new values. And it's just so like the LAPD has gone through however many regime changes and however many like different different stances in different places and it's just like and i don't even mean to make this about the lapd but i mean you can't help but associate like well you know there's rodney king and then there's what yeah you know, the the la riots and, and and those are just a few things but like how i i do think that there is a there's an interesting comment on that like hearing so there's so much hope for the future in 1951 when really it's like the change isn't it's not gonna happen well, and and there, as we've seen in the other movies that we've discussed, especially in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, L.A. did very much try to squash the communities that were not a part of the white communities. So the black communities, the Hispanic communities, the, communities, the Asian communities. I mean, they built a freeway through an affluent black neighborhood specifically to make them move. So so I do I do think that while there isn't a ton of representation in L.A. Confidential, I think it does make sense for this to be from the perspective that it is because it's a white man's perspective from the 1950s. Do I think it's the the greatest a portrayal of people no because it's it everything's morally gray but i do appreciate the fact that they did stick with like this is a white man's portrayal and it's going to be a white man's portrayal of of police brutality and that's fine it's i have a lot of opinions about this movie but i still really like it it's one of, it's a it's a tough one 
I, yeah, I mean, it, it is. And I think that's, I, you know, part of this and I love, I mean, and it's not quite, we don't really have the full spectrum, but I, you know, I do love that we have, we have Ed on the one end who is like, I'm going to do everything by the books. I, I will throw police under the bus if it means that we're sticking to the letter of the law. And then we have Bud White who is like, I will, I will beat the shit out of somebody if I think it's going to help somebody down the road. And then, you know, yeah, we've got Jack Vincennes who is, who, who's interesting. I actually, I do, I love Jack's arc. I love how yeah. it works with the, um, oh, yeah. uh, what's his name? Um, si- Simon Baker, but what is his name in the movie? Um, Matt, is it something Chase? Something, Brett Chase. Uh, no, not Brett Chase. That's not right. Um, Matt Reynolds. That's what it is. Um, and, I like Brett you know, Chase, whatever. The guy Brett Chase died, is the star right? of, what's it called? Badge of Honor. Um, Brutal uh, death. But, uh, but yeah, it is. It totally is. And I, I do. I really love the the silent storytelling of 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 Vincennes waiting in the bar with the fifty, and he puts it on the drink, and he's like, he his conscience gets the better of him, but it's too late. And then, and it's like it is still too late, and yet he he was still kind of was he was he was he arresting people? Yes. Were they doing crimes? Yes. Was it a bit uh, handled in a terrible way? It sure was. Um, but but I just think like his arc was I thought was really was really interesting it was really it was a fun not fun but like uh interesting to watch storyline in the movie it's really interesting because in the book he actually well first off i want to say that that 50 tip would be a 600 tip nowadays um so that's actually like bonkers can you imagine getting a 600 tip just for like a drink incredible um but in the book the reason that he's working with sid is because he actually uh, and in the book they go into way more backstories with everybody which i think it's actually that's one of the things i i we miss we get bud's backstory but we don't get either exley's or jack's and i think it's it it's a bummer especially in exley's case but um Jack actually killed two people while he was drunk and high in a theater. And um, Sid knows about this. And that's why he continues to work with Sid. And I find that relationship really interesting. And I do think it kind of takes away from Jack because honestly, why is Jack doing this? What, like they kind of make it like, oh, he wants to be on the front page. But but why would he do this unless Sid had something on him that he could put in Hush Hush? So I think that was a it's a bummer that they didn't include that because I think it's a really important element to him. And they let Bud have his backstory where he was chained to a radiator while his mom died and then was there for a week with her dead body. And and I just wish they had given that opportunity to Jack, too. But that's one of the things in the book that I wish they had included. And see, and that, oh, that's so great. Cause I, well, I think that would have been a really cool uh, relationship between the two of them. I don't necessarily, I mean, we'll never know. I don't know that I miss it, but also, but then it's interesting because you're true. Cause we, we get, um, we get Bud's backstory and we even, we get, we get Exley's like that Ro- Rolo Tomasi, right? The guy who gets away with it. Right. Which is all made up. That doesn't I, I, exist yes. in the book. Yes. Um, but then, and the fact that we don't, like, I mean, who knows if Curtis Hanson and Brian Hugelin thought of this, but maybe the fact that we don't get Vincent's backstory is sort of a key into, like, he's going to be the first one to go. Like, he's not... Totally. He's not worthy of getting the backstory because he's going to be the... He's, like, the sacrificial lamb of the three of them. I mean, okay, I've never thought of it that way because... I haven't either. Be real. <laughs> like, until just now when you said it. But, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. That is... You, it's almost like you're a professor or something looking into things all the time. 
I, I Some do people love might say that's one of my most annoying qualities. Oh, I like I, it. I yeah, think I it's a good Please. quality. Maybe I'll find it annoying come like another year and you're saying this about a movie that I don't care about. I don't know. We'll see where we go. Fair. But right that's now, I, I appreciate that. I think that's really, really interesting and very cool. And I, I love the moment when, when Sid talks about how Jack's his friend and they're friends and they work together, da da da. And the backstory takes away from that moment. But that's that's all the DeVito of it. Because I love that part of it where he's like, no, we're friends. We're friends. We work together. Um, I'm okay, Jack, just being this kind of shallow fame chaser who gets a conscience there. Like, I like the, the, I like the turn. It, it feels deserved. I, I, because that's not where I expected that character to go at all. Even, I mean, I've, I've seen this before, but it's been a while. And yeah, I've yeah, then he dies a real then he then he goes out. Giving up giving up info. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, that well, though I do have to say, like I Dudley, we know he's a dirty cop from the beginning, but it, when he shoots Vincennes, I was shocked the yeah, first time. Same. Yes. Absolutely. But that's because it's James Cromwell. You don't expect James well now you if you've watched like uh, the second season of American Horror Story, you absolutely expect him to do shit like this. But I didn't expect James Cromwell to be a bad guy. He sings to Babe. Like, come I, on. I, I loved hearing Curtis Hansen say that they played into that intentionally, that that people were going to have that association with him and Babe, and that that, like, that was great. Also, um, weird thing to say, um, Kevin Spacey's dead face might be the best dead face. I've. It's really good. Did you hear all the issues about it? Like in oh, the behind no, the scenes? I, ooh, I did oh, not. Okay, this this was, was there were a lot good? of really fun like behind the scenes things. Like Kim Basinger said she wasn't going to do the movie, and then she found out from a costuming friend that her friend was making her costumes for LA Confidential, and she was like, "Wait, did I agree to that movie? I'm confused." You know that type of a thing, and um. So apparently, because James Cromwell was so close to um, to that guy, Jack, uh, I, I forgot his name for a second, but uh, to him when he died, every time he went off screen and walked away, he would follow him with his eyes, even though he was supposed to be dead. Oh. So they had to, like, put two really large black circles on the wall behind James Cromwell so that he could just shift his focus to that instead of watching him. And I will agree that what an incredible moment when he just walks away from dead Jack. It's, it's really great. Awesome. Awesome moment that like, I'm still like, I watched it twice for this. It still got me. It's great. Well done. It, it gets me every time, every time. And when Ed Exley um, actually shoots him in the back, uh, it's it's such an interesting character moment for Ed. But I do think that Ed's probably my favorite of all of them. I think he's he's just so he's so interesting in the book, in the book, because I did read the book this time and I found it very interesting in the book. Ed Exley is actually a military hero. He has a Medal of Honor, but he got it through dirty means because he didn't actually earn it he earned it because they said that he killed an entire trench full of um, Japanese soldiers when really he just found their bodies they had all died his entire platoon had died as well and he made it look like he had basically uh, flamethrowered them all 
and um and they gave him a medal of honor so that he could get ahead in the military and he knew it would look good when he got into the police force so it's it's really interesting that he has this this whole at the end when he's willing to burn everything to the ground even his own his own like case that made him who he was in order to prove yeah to to just like actually have some justice i just think he's a really good character gay pierce forever you want to with a wrecking ball it's my line of the movie ah it's so good oh you really want to take down the the bloody the that night owl with a wrecking ball you want to swing with me i fucking love that line it's so good it's and that part of the movie like oh just so in on it i love it so much See my right, so my two lines. Oh. oh, go for it. Go no no go for it. I like this line. Oh, oh, oh I was just saying, so I have I have one um that's like more. I have my like serious like oh yeah um and it's um it, Ed actually says this and it's something about he goes um when it's it's when Ed's given his testimony early in the movie and he goes that's because they think silence and integrity are the same thing which I think is just a great just a great great line. line. Uh, but I got to be honest. My actual favorite line of the movie is when um, Bud goes to see Lynn for the first time at her place and the guy comes up and he goes, LAPD shitbird. And I'm like, that's just, <laughs> that's it. That's just, it was the first time I heard shitbird in a movie and I have used it since. You just can't go wrong with that line. It's so good. I mean, <laughs> I, I do think that Russell Crowe, incredible choice for this movie. And and the fact that in the behind the scenes, he talked about like how Bud is supposed to be, he's described as the largest man on the police force. And Russell Crowe's not a particularly large man. You know who is James Cromwell? Um, but the like the fact that they were able to make him look and feel so big. And I'm, I'm wondering if either of you caught on to this because I did this last time that I watched it. And maybe I was looking into things but when Bud is on, like kind of in cahoots with James Cromwell's character Dudley, they're always in the same like they're always on the same level. So if they're in a scene, James Cromwell is sitting or they're both sitting or or Bud is very close to the camera and James Cromwell is farther away so that they look like they're the same size. But when Bud starts to go against James Cromwell and his whole shtick, that one scene, they're standing same same place in the camera, and James Cromwell is towering over him. And I'm wondering if that was an actual choice or if I'm just reading into it too much because I know how tall James Cromwell is. I my guess is that 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 seems like the kind of intentional choice that a right. That's yeah. what I thought too. It seems purposeful. Yeah, it, it helps with status. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was really good. I really, really liked it. I was like, great job, especially when James Cromwell's six six and and he does really he does command a, a he commands the scene when he's in it. I, I really enjoyed him in the movie. I will say his Irish dialect was a little weird for me. Came in and out a little bit, it, so it was a little weird. Well, it threw it, me I, a know, few it, times. I couldn't tell like Boyo. Yeah, me. Maybe he was maybe he was born in Ireland, but then came when he was like a. I, I have this. I don't know. I'm making up this backstory where like he maybe he was from Ireland, but like came as a kid. So part of it like sneaks out, you know. He definitely didn't in the book because in the book I believe that he was like an in 
Irish national who killed British soldiers before going to L.A. and becoming a police officer. So they're definitely not in the book. But it could be what they were going for in the movie. I don't know. It didn't really take me out of it that much. I just thought maybe he was a, an immigrant who's lost his his accent, which happens. I mean, my husband's British. He's been here for nine years. And there are plenty of people that like when we go back home, people tell him he sounds a lot more American than I think he sounds, you know, so it does naturally happen. If you've immigrated somewhere else, you're going to lose your accent. I'm not sure that's what they were going for. But I'm gonna let him have it. Like it didn't it didn't take it out. Take me out of the movie. I just was like, Oh, could have been better could have been worse. Who knows? It seems like one of those things where it just I imagine somewhere on a cutting room floor there's a very Irish accent in the scene and they're like, you know, we don't need to do this. We can just we can just let it go. Yeah, we'll just throw, we can just let it go. We're just going to throw Boyo in every like 20th line and that's good enough for us. I did really like the shot um, where both he and Exley are talking and he's like, oh, this is now my crime scene, blah, blah, blah. And then they go to take a picture, and the both of them like pose. Oh, when he takes his glasses and off, and, and he, Guy Pierce kind of makes neck the duck in, so his jaws. Yep, and he puts his jaw out. It's incredible. Oh. I loved it. I yeah, will that was say a great scene. that as a person who who recently has had to start wearing glasses, I didn't like all the glasses jokes. I didn't think that was really cool. Well, let him wear glasses. <laughs> let him just wear glasses. He can see better. Come on. Yeah, it was very 90s like sitcom. Poor Stephanie Tanner getting like bullied and Uncle Joey having to help her. Like like just just let the guy wear glasses so he could see you when he when he you know, and then they're calling him shotgun ed. You can't have a shotgun ed and not let him wear his glasses. I will oh I I one of my favorite moments in the movie um is when so it's it's when um the night owl suspects have escaped and it's ed and the other one of the shit cops they they go to the place and we have that like that shootout that probably shouldn't have happened obviously because it starts with a broken bottle but then when it all goes the way that it does and the one guy is running to the elevator and when he sticks the shotgun in and it shoots it goes silent and it's just like like ambient sounds but the score kicks out and it's just on him that was such a great joy such a great moment Beautiful. We were watching that moment, and um, as I, I, this is one of the movies that my husband actually watched with me because you know a couple of them he's like absolutely not. By a couple of them, most of them he's not been really interested in rewatching or watching. But this one, absolutely. And when Ed Exley did it, he just stopped and he went, "He has no idea if anybody else is in that elevator." And I went, "You're right. He has no idea if there was like a family of five children standing in that elevator, and he just filled them full of freaking." Buck. like yeah it it really does show it does show how morally gray the character is and i will say that everybody everybody's extreme in the in the book there is there are no redeeming qualities about any any person which i i do appreciate and while they do make them more likable in the movie this is a fully like gr- morally gray gray cast there is th- there really is nothing good about anybody in it. There's nothing. There's a lot of bad things, but but you, it's not a cut and dry. Who's good? Who's bad? Who's doing this? And I I really appreciate that about this film. I think it's one of the most successful versions of this because I think people try to do it, and it's it's difficult to make likable characters that aren't necessarily morally correct about anything that they do. 
uh, you, you mentioned we got it. We got to start talking about Dante Spinotti because his God, my unsung so hero, my unsung hero. He's amazing, and everybody nice. doesn't talk about him enough. He's fantastic. Some of the shots when I was writing my like shot and see, shot of the movie, I just wrote like forty-seven things, and I was like, "Well, this is stupid. It's just everything." The movie's everything. so everything. engaging to watch. Every it's yeah, it's, it's so well done. The one scene when it, you know that initial interrogation with the DA and the the chief, whatever. When Jack goes to talk to the one-way glass, and you see Ed like his reflection in it while Jack talks to him, brilliant! That's fucking amazing. It's so quick and good, and goddamn. So yeah, he's my unsung hero because he's fantastic. Hell yeah, he's so good. I was watching some behind the scenes, and he was the one that actually came up with the the natural lighting throughout all of the film, instead of going for the really hard noir vibes that we usually get that are just you know lots of shadows and and you know the blinds on people's faces and everything he he was the one that suggested that they should go for a more naturalistic uh, appearance for the film and I think it really grounds it without that I think it would be too much especially with the dialogue and the acting to be perfectly honest because it all is very heightened He's so good. I guess, you know, if we're talking about him, we'll talk about favorite shots. Um, I don't particularly love Bud and Lynn. Like, in the film, I, I just kind of, I'm like, this whole scene, not my, this whole thing is not my favorite. But when Lynn leads Bud into her room, her real room, not the room that she has her customers to, everything about that is really warm and beautiful. And there is a moment where the two tumble onto the bed and they kiss and they have this like golden light just kind of showering the two of them and it is just one of the most beautiful shots i've ever seen in a film it's it felt like i was witnessing something extremely special and something that i probably shouldn't have seen and and i felt really lucky to have seen that shot so that that's my favorite shot because i was I was completely brought into this romance, even though it's not my favorite part of the film. And I was like, damn, good on you, cinematographer. You did a good job bringing that in. <laughs> I, I want to ju- jump in because I, my, my favorite, my favorite um, shot, uh, it, it, it's not like a, a very even a, like a hugely important scene, but it's also it's the way that it was shot. So I think it's funny, Britt, that you say that. Um, it's when... It's when Ed and Bud go to Pierce Patchett's and they, they find him and he, he's he's been killed. But yeah. there's like a it's it's a one but it's not a very long one take. But it's the choreography of Bud and Ed going in and out of frame and the way that they work off each other. It's that they're just they're just going through the house. But it is it is so smooth and it is so slick. And again, it, it improves upon what a film noir could have been. I just I love the way the camera moves in that scene. Honestly, um, I, I think that this movie would have failed miserably without Dante Spinotti. He's just so good. And let me see. I'm going to pull this up and see uh, if I still have this because he lost for Best Cinematography. It, it was to um, Titanic. So you know, of course it's Titanic. I'm not surprised. Let's see if I can find it. Okay, so we have it's Titanic. Amistad, Kundun, which I, I have no idea what movie that is. I'm going to be perfectly honest here. What was it? I LA Confidential. It. It's called Kun- Kundun? 
Kundu? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's actually a Scorsese film. Uh, yeah, I have no idea. Sorry, Scorsese. Um, L.A. Confidential and The Wings of a of the Dove. And to be perfectly honest, L.A. Confidential fully wins for me. I've seen three out of five of these films, but I'm wondering if if either of you feel differently. Uh, no, I'm I'm totally with you. And there's a much larger conversation to be had about cinematography wins when movies are so heavily made in a computer like Titanic was. I don't yeah. think Titanic is a Titanic is a beautiful film like the way I mean it is. Yeah. But it is it's a tricky how much of that was rendered and how much of that was done by the DP. It it's it's a uh, really there were, tough and there were models in Titanic. There were a lot of practical effects which is yeah. incredible. Oh, yes. Yeah. But but I agree because the shots in LA Confidential are just they're magic if, to to use a really intense work for it they're they're magic to watch it's amazing what what he can do with it and how he built this world you know it 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 really does feel like a film where everything just meshed together in 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 the right ways yeah no yeah i mean my scene He's is good. the good what the... Is... Yeah, he's great. My my scene is the shootout at the Victory Motel. I love that whole scene and just oh, yeah. it's I'm, I I want it to never end. It's so engaging and interesting and just the story, but the way it's shot is is, it's a good is shootout. great. Yeah, great shootout. Um when 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 Bud goes down to the floor, the floorboards, I'm fucking I'm like fired up. I love the whole thing. I was watching it going, my God, how many people are they going to kill? What, like 15? How many people are around the Victory Motel? But I, I love that scene. I think it's great. Um, It wasn't in the book. There's a shootout at the beginning in the prologue. But the ending is very much it ends with a whimper and Dudley doesn't die. And, and it all goes on to another movie and or another book. It's... I prefer this ending, and they actually, when they were trying to figure out what to do with the end of this movie, they thought, well, we already have the ending. It's just in the prologue. Let's just bring that to the back. And I, I think it ends the way that it should, because that shootout is is so good. And the fact that Exley decides that he'd rather shoot Dudley than allow him to be this corrupt, basically, mob boss is amazing. Agree. Uh, my favorite, my favorite scene involves what's not, what, you know, Brit's favorite part of the show, Guy Pierce. And it, it is the interrogating of what they believe are the night owl suspects. Me too. Oh, Me too. That's, that's my great. favorite scene. Yeah, I think it's great. highly problematic, but it's so good. Well, it, oh, it's obviously problematic, but like it's it, in the, but like the way in which he, he uses the speakers to get people to think and like, it's oh, just it like, so smart. So good. It's so smart. And it it's very close to what happens in the book. Like, but it's it's so much nicer to watch it happen. And and it's it's also very interesting how there is so much tension. And I'm not sure if either of you felt it, but when all of the the like twenty police officers and detectives are standing outside of the interrogation rooms and Ed Exley, when he goes in, he's somehow able to calm that tension because he's able to get he's able to get the information that they want out of these guys through pretty problematic means but it's he commands that scene and it's it, it's also my favorite scene it's just so good and it's one it, i go back to 
and through through very again through very problematic means we that that scene also does what the movie kind of keeps telling us is that these both of these methods are gonna are, are gonna get results we have we have Ed kind of tricking people and using his wits to get answers. And then we have Bud White coming and doing a version of Russian roulette, also getting answers. Now, again, problematic, of course, but like both, like both tactics worked. And so it's like, again, it's like, yeah. and, and you're told, and the more that we keep talking about it, it's so it's interesting because I think we, they, Ed and Bud start on one end, very rigid in what they believe. And then they move to this, they do, they, they move into this gray area. And by the end, They've 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 changed who they are. You you could say that they're better people, but it's like, you know, that gray area is so murky. It is so murky. And I'm not sure that we could say they're better people. I think they're people more willing to look at the other side, potentially. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, learning new skills, I think, is. Yeah, learning new skills to be to be a, a, a violent, violent man in in the LAPD or not in the LAPD anymore uh, as we see with Bud who's you know pretty maimed at the end of the movie he got shot through the cheek like that how do you survive that uh-huh. um you know I was watching this film and like it's obviously a commentary on the brutality of specifically white man but uh, white men but went men in power and i do think that's a really important message i think it's an important message to represent on screen and i don't want that to be changed at all but i did feel like you know especially you know we had very few non-white characters in this movie and they obviously this movie is not a representation of what it was like to be black or Hispanic in the 1950s. This movie is a representation of what it was like to be an LAPD cop. And that's fine. That's what we need. But I would really like to see like a movie that portrays black people in the 1950s, like 1950s LA. I would love to have a film like that because I, I, I do have to say that it is difficult to watch that whole scene. Um, just because it's it's just it's such a good scene but it also at the same time it's such a a specific representation I don't know that I just wanted to put that out there because it it, you know it's it's a it's a tough film it is a tough film well I would I would definitely suggest um Devil in a Blue Dress which is a Denzel film okay um and I don't I I think I might have used it as a recommend um on a prior episode, he says as he quickly looks. I didn't, but I did talk about it. Um, it's uh, I would check it out because it's like it's like a film noir, but it's like entirely it's like a, it's a black cast, and I think I think it's L.A. Um, but it is it cool. is like 1995 noir, but with Denzel and Don Cheadle. It, it's it's pretty good. Oh, that's cool. Okay, cool. Um, but it's it's funny because I I definitely I wouldn't say that the the film does a good job of representing um African Americans or Hispanics, but it, I think what it does, it, it, it says it because it's because it is an LAPD focused movie. I, what I do think it does, especially kind of even when I watched it first, but you know, watching it now, it does just show how inherently racist those groups are. And I think, yes, and that's and, and while it's like obviously like, ooh, the black people in this movie are, are hoodlums and criminals, and so are the Hispanics, like that's that's obviously like not true, but it also was very true for those people in the 50s. 
Yeah. Well, I just, I guess another thing that I wish they had brought in a little bit more from the book is that um, Dudley was specifically, uh, he was, he was moving heroin through and he was selling heroin specifically to, um, to Hispanics and uh, to the black communities to try as a population control. And so when they are like, oh, what's the drug dealer that we're going to do? And it is a white man that they go to, um, or at least it appears to be a white man in the movie. It's that was orchestrated by Dudley. Like and I think that they could have brought that in more to the film to kind of showcase that 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 this was being used as a means of population control in L.A. at that time. Um, that would have been just, that would have. That would have been an interesting wrinkle to throw into the to the right? storytelling. Yeah, I just think, and I get that they probably couldn't for time, you know, to, for time reasons. But it, it just for me, I was like, oh, that's a missed opportunity. Yeah, I hear you. That's interesting, but it's already two twenty, so adding things starts getting. <laughs> it's it's true. This is funny. Like I, this is one of the fast. This is the fastest two hour and seventeen minute movie I've ever seen. I, I would have. I, I, think, I think we're all like. I would have taken. I would have taken twenty to thirty more minutes of these people. I, I gotta be perfectly honest. The Thin Man's what eighty six minutes, and that's the longest eighty six <laughs> minutes of my life. And this just goes. Yeah, this flies. I could when it ended. That's I was amazing. I couldn't believe it was over. I agree. Okay. No. Okay. I want to. I haven't I haven't said my unsung hero yet because Oh yeah, please please tell us your unsung hero. We, we've talked about so many and honestly like all of these people are deserving. You've brought up four. Um, <laughs> I brought up but they but I was like these are all potentials and I inadvertently gave away Brits. Uh sorry about yeah. that. No, that's great. I loved it. I was like I usually give my unsung hero away at the beginning. So perfect. Um mine is uh Jerry Goldsmith. I really love the score um and it does the thing where it puts you in the world but again it's like riffing on the noir and my favorite moment of the score is when um is when bud's under the house and he uh he opens the uh the like the blanket or whatever and we see that there's a body in it and the music does this thing where it sounds like flies or bees Ooh, and i was yes. like oh yeah and, and like That's... my my i got goosebumps my skin crawled and i was like that is effective scoring of a movie right there i loved it it's great yeah i do feel like a score should enhance the movie without overshadowing it and i think that this is one of uh, this is a a great representation Um, let me say that again a great representation of that because it, it there other than like that moment there's never a moment where i'm like oh oh wait what what's going on with the music here oh shit i i lost the dialogue it just enhances what's happening and yeah that, in addition to the the costuming, are, I think are just so flawless in the film. There's so many things we could just, I could say about this film that I think are are perfect and I incredible. Mean, and, and I don't even like I know like who gives a shit about like the IMDb whatever and other things, but like here's the thing, this movie and to take this for what it's worth, ninety nine percent critical, ninety four percent audience on Rotten Tomatoes. Like that's probably one of the most universally appreciated beloved whatever films that you could watch and yeah it's questionable and tough but i think because it's a cop movie and we're supposed to see that those we're supposed to see that it's tough um man and then and then and then you and then you put the story over here and then you've got the cast over here doing their thing and then you put all of the technical and production elements and it really is it's like it's a 
It's a beautiful gumbo. I picked gumbo because I like gumbo. I could have said stew, but I'm a gumbo fan. But it's just a beautiful <laughs> everything. Just, just, mmm, mmm. It's a tasty. It, it all works. Movie. Every everything it enhances really everything it, enhances everything else. I I agree. No, I just damn. I love this film. I can't help it. <laughs> it's nice. It's just film. a good movie. Yeah, real good. And you know, it doesn't get talked enough. And you know, it's it's a movie with no like heroes. Right, it's just kind of better yep. than the mob guy, so it's good, and I think that makes it interesting because everybody's compelling, and you have to really look at each character and how much, you know, looking for motivations, looking for why they're doing what they're doing, and the connections, and it's it's everything's just so well done, and they they nailed it. This movie doesn't get talked about enough. I agree. I totally agree. Well, on that, I'm thinking maybe we should get to the list that I, I had teased about earlier. Let's go. Because LA Confidential is definitely going to be on this list. Um, and I, I had some time to think about this. But, you know, I, I, I just have to ask, how do you two feel about lists? Like, like what are your true feelings towards them? I love them. I made like three lists today to get through work. Oh my god. Um uh y- yeah, yeah. I w- and especially as I'm on the road, uh lists, who lists are good. Lists are lists are uh, like a, a comfortable chair. I I really appreciate it and I, and I feel comforted by it. Yeah. How do you um how do you feel about making lists on the fly without any um any sort of notice that you would be making a list? Uh, you know, I feel okay. I feel okay. You know, it depends how into it I am, but I like to, I, I'm a, I like to prepare and process. I I think that you'll you'll be into this because on this season of One Thousand and One by One, we've talked about five movies that have to deal with LA. We've had four episodes now. Um, specifically about the movies and one movie that we discussed in a director ranking. So I, and these are the movies that we have talked about. We've talked about La La Land, Drive, now LA Confidential, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Mulholland Drive. I would like you two to rank these films for me. And after you're done, I will rank mine. But I figured we could make a collective, uh, we could make three lists about LA for our our listeners. All right, I will go first, Joey. I know I'm I'm pretty good on the fly. I'm gonna bring my improv skills into this. I'm gonna let you ponder and and really. Yeah, I just need two minutes. On yours. Yeah. Okay, so five four are are pretty obvious to me for for me for my list. Uh, five, La La Land. Four, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <sighs> Uh, and now we're talking about three movies that I, I really, really fucking like. Um, okay. I'm going to say that my number three, and this might surprise some people, is L.A. Confidential. I think I, I, then I think I'm going to go for my number two, Mulholland Drive, and then Drive number one. 
Whoa, okay. I assumed Mulholland Drive would be number one, but okay, I'll, that, I'll allow it. it cause this it is hurt. about personal it taste. It hurt to say. It hurt to say. That's it where hurts I'm right now. me, but <laughs> that's, obviously. That's my, <laughs> that's my list now. I accept. I mean, you know, we all know how I felt after the host, so I just expect you all to hurt me now. So it's fine. It's fine. All right. So, Joey, I'm more than happy to go next no, if I'm you good. would like just a couple more minutes. No, I'm good. I'm figuring it out. Um, I, I found I really like all these fucking movies, so this is hard. But they're really good. Yeah, like these are all really good. This is a bummer. But hey, um, number five, and it makes me super sad. Is Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Um, and that sucks, but it is what it is. Um, number four is LA Confidential. Number three is Drive. Number two is Mulholland Drive and one is La La Land. Get the I fuck mean, out I can, of here. I can accept. I can accept because La La Land is great. Though I don't think you're going to like it on my ranking. I mean, Adam put it at five, so I can't like it less than that. I don't know. Um, so <laughs> you're like, I'm not I, I ranking it. I, <laughs> I'm not ranking. I'm throwing it out. There's no reason to rank it um, because I have to do something different. No, when I was thinking about this, like I really enjoy all of these movies. I will be rewatching all of these movies. And if I were to go by, like, rewatchability, I think that this would be a different list. Um, but this is this is my list. And I had more time to think about this. Um, so number five, I don't think this will come as a surprise to any of you, is Drive. Number five is Drive. Number four is La La Land. I love La La Land, but it is my number four because my number three is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Just the animation in that movie, I can't, I can't put it any lower than that um for me my number two is la confidential i just there is something about this movie that really really captures me i get it i am into it and i'm gonna rewatch it a couple more times probably in the next couple years you know and then my number one i can't i can't help myself david lynch mulholland drive all the way but but you know i just i felt like we have so many LA movies in this in this season that it would have done been a disservice to not rank those on on air. So, great idea. Yeah, no, that's these what are that... our ranking. Awesome way to get out of finding a list. I appreciate your ingenuity. You know what? I found multiple lists and I found them really boring. So I figured it was more interesting to do it this way because it was all like, what films have the vibes of L.A.? And I'm like, oh, my God, nobody cares. Jesus Christ. Is it going to be Escape from L.A.? Yeah. Is it going to be like L.A. Confidential? Of course. Is it going to be Drive? Uh, Yeah, obviously. Will Mulholland Drive not be on this list? Yeah. Like, you know. So so I decided to go with this instead because I thought it was fun and a, a different way to go with the list thing. <laughs> All right. We've done favorite shots, scene, unsung hero. We've talked about our favorite quotes. Um, do you, I, I, other than going into Bloody Christmas, which I think I'm just not going to do and we'll tell you guys after the, because it's really disturbing. Um, other than I guess I'll say that James Elroy really likes to put real like real things that happened into his books. So Bloody Christmas was an actual thing that happened. 
And um, it's how the whole movie opens for anybody, Aaron Reinholtz, if you haven't seen it, this is how it opens. Um, But it is the first, it is the first time that LA criminally convicted police officers of excessive use of force. And it was in 1952 that that happened, even though the incident happened in December of 1951, which is pretty bonkers to think. There were over 100 officers at the LAPD office drinking at a Christmas party. So I, I think it's interesting that he used an actual event that was really, really harmful for the LAPD uh, department um, to show, like, to be the catalyst of this whole book, this whole story. I do, I, and I think I do like that kind of a of a that historical fiction because obviously Mickey Cohen was a real person as well. So mm-hmm. like, right. kind of sprinkling in these real, and then like obviously the movie stars that these that you know Lana Turner and Veronica Lake and those like I I like that. Um, the guy, the guy that Lana Turner's boyfriend was actually a real guy. He has a bigger part in the um, in the movie. And fun fact, this is not a fun fact, but he, her daughter actually shot him to death. Oh, well, okay, good for her. I'm sure that um, was the right move. Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, did you two know? This is the last thing I have because I just got to mention this because I I didn't know this was a thing until researching the movie. Did you know that they made this movie and they they filmed the TV pilot? For what was yes. to be a show, if you have the special edition Blu-ray, you can watch it. Did you watch oh, it? It's, I watched oh, it's as like much as available. Oh, yeah. Is it I, I watched, Kiefer Sutherland, Jack? Yeah, uh, Kiefer Sutherland is the is the lead. It. I. I listen. I could only watch about ten minutes because it's really not good. It's. I mean, it's really, really not good. Um, I wanted to. I wanted to try to watch it before this but I, I i really couldn't get back into it but that, like that's a thing it, it's they it, there's at least one episode of la confidential the series look if you want to watch a good police procedural in a, as a series watch the first season of perry mason man it's really good i haven't seen the second season so i don't know if it's good but that's a good one i don't think la confidential needs to be made into a series especially not one with Kiefer sutherland <laughs> But Ace, 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 Ace grew up to be that. a cop. Ace grew up to be a cop, right? <laughs> oh, man. Was it just like painful? Was the acting like I, I got to know why you only made it 10 minutes? It was more like aesthetically like you. it had it, it felt because I, I, I have to imagine they probably filmed it like late 90s, early 2000s. And it just had this like it didn't look like the 50s. It felt it wasn't shot the same. It didn't have the same vibe. Like instantly, I was like, "This just feels like a crime show with uh, some bad costumes kind of thrown." Do you know what I mean? Like it, there was nothing fifties about it. Right. It. That's yeah. disappointing. What a waste! Just completely missing why this all works so fantastically well. Yeah. And also, I bet their cinematographer was a, wasn't Dante. So what's the point? Like. Just a bit of a. We're gonna be talking about a lot, uh, a lot about Dante when we do the Michael Mann um, ranking next year because that was a yes. big DP of his. So Dante Spinotti is not going anywhere. I mean, I think Russell Crowe said he's done multiple movies with him, and he was like, "If I, if you can work with him multiple times, you are a better person for it." And I was like, "That is incredible! Like, damn, this guy might be the best in the business, according to these, uh, to these people who are talking about him, and maybe me after watching LA Confidential because, damn, it's pretty." He's great. My unsung hero. That guy crushed it. Yeah. Good unsung hero. All 
right? I think we're, I think we're kind of at the the end here. Unless either of you have anything to say. You know what We've I've been thinking. Th- you know what I've been thinking. Completely unrelated. You know what I've been thinking about since we made our lists. What my favorite LAPD officer in movie history, Jack from Speed. Oh, oh my God, 100%, oh. absolutely. If if Speed was included, like if I had my top LA movie, Speed would be the top of the list because their Speed is incredible. He's my favorite LAPD officer in movies. When I was little and I used to watch Speed like every day, I said I wanted to be LAPD. Fair. And my dad was like, do you, do you understand what that is? I was like, I thought it was like, a, like just like a super cool cop. I didn't realize it was like Los Angeles Police Department. I was watching Speed too young, so. That's fair. That's fair. I thought that like if I got on a bus, I'd be bombed. So you know. With uh, yeah, not well, not the Bullock. So. I mean, also, we were recently rewatching that movie, and I was like, "Dang, Sandra Bullock's outfit's real cute." And that's when I was like, "Oh, '90s fashion came back for a little while there, didn't it?" Yep, yep, it sure did. I still would wear it to this day because that dress is adorable. Wildcat. Oh, God. Ah. Speed. Now I want to go watch Speed. It is one of the few movies that we do own. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yep. Speed and Redline. Oh, my God. That should be a watch party right there. Speed and Redline. Oh, my God. Have you watched it yet, Adam? You said you were going to. I Yeah. Okay. We've talked about how not how no time I have. But that is that's yeah, on my list true. for once the show's open. Yes. Fair. Fair, fair, fair. That's fine. That's fine. I'm actually really nervous for anybody to watch it because I talk about it all the time. So if you watch it, you're like, this is the fucking dumbest movie I've ever seen. I'm going to be so sad. But also like, yeah, fair. It is pretty dumb. No, then just just say, no, that's more about you than it is about the movie. And just really double down. <laughs> that's what I do. I'm like, no, no, no. It's not me who missed it. It's you missed it. You just, you just don't understand. Is that how you it. feel about Adam talking about LA uh, La La Land? Oh, oh boy. Yes, and I, I heard I heard the shots on the Out of Africa episode, Adam and Grant. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's Rolodex like, back yeah, here. I got it for later. I got it. I got it. <laughs> oh, right. fun, fun. Okay, well, I think um, I think we're ready for our our question of of the series. Really, um, Adam, we'll start with you. Do you think that LA Confidential should be in the book? One thousand percent, yes. Um, in fact, uh, we we didn't do this too many times, and this might be a bit of a bold statement, but I forget what what movie it was. But Ian answered that question once by saying, "If there was a book of a hundred and one movies you must see before you die," and then he answered that this might be in there. And I'm not saying it's one of even my hundred favorite films, but like what it does, it it it's. It encapsulates all parts of filmmaking, and and it's a really great representation of that. So, I I think, and I and I actually agree with Joey too. I, as good as it is, I think it's really underrated. I don't think enough people talk about this movie. So, yes, absolutely, yes. Wonderful. Thank you um, for those glowing glowing words about L.A. Confidential. Uh, I appreciate it, Joey. What do you think? Absolutely. This is why this book exists for movies like this, for people to find this, because every single thing Adam said about it is correct. Um, It absolutely deserves to be in this book. And I wish it got more love. 
I don't know. You know, and nobody who watches it just doesn't like it. It's just when people are talking about great 90s movies or great, you know, all the Russell Crowe movies. And it, it just never comes up for some reason. And it deserves to because it really is great. You know, I was I heard one person discussing it because I was listening to a couple of people talk about it just because, you know, while I was writing my notes out and somebody said that they found it really unrealistic. And I kind of stopped in my tracks and I was like, you don't understand. You don't understand what this this movie is not supposed to necessarily be realistic. This is a it, this is a heightened film. It, I don't like Jurassic oh, Park because oh. dinosaurs don't exist. I <laughs> kind of yeah that's kind of how i felt um, some people don't deserve to have you know, opinions on movies they're stupid that's okay you know they're allowed to have their opinion even if it's wrong i said this many time adam knows i feel this way about uh, his opinion of spirited away it's fine there it you know there it is. it's yep. fine <laughs> but um so you know thinking about this and um I feel like I've been really down on the movies lately i've realized that most of the films we've talked about in the last a couple of episodes I haven't really wanted to be in the book and going into LA Confidential I was like I'm not gonna let that I'm not gonna let that try to um to dictate my experience with this film and I I was nervous watching it because I wasn't I wasn't sure if I just loved it as a personal film or if it really should be a film that everybody should watch and I think this will come as a surprise to no one that I think this film should be in the book. Like, <laughs> let's be real, y'all. This fucking film rocks. It's so good. Everything works about this movie. And I really highly recommend watching it. You got me there for Watch a second. Watch this film if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Just, just do it. Me too. Yep. Yeah. I, you got <laughs> me for a second. I was like, oh, my God. I was like, we're about to have another Rocky Horror issue. I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm still going back and forth on my Rocky Horror, but, you know, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, but, yeah, no, everybody, watch L.A. Confidential. It's it's a good time. It really is a good time, even with the subject matter. And well, there I you think, have it. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. That's all we have to say about 1997's L.A. Confidential. What do we have going on next week, friends? Oh, next week, I hope I have it right, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead. Super excited to get into the world of Evil Dead and Evil Dead and Sam Raimi. And I can't wait. Very excited to watch and talk about. Now, I will I will say, and, and this is going to come up when we do it. I've seen it. Not a fan of it. I have seen. Now, now hold on. Now, I have seen the newest one that just came out. And my intention is to, I'm going to watch, I'm going to watch them all. I'm going to, I'm going to get into the world and I'm going to come in as open. I'm telling you now, I'm not coming in curmudgeonly and like not going to change my mind. I'm, I'm, I'm coming in with an open, an open heart and an open mind. All right. So you two? you're, you're telling us it's not going to be another lighthouse where you're like, yeah, I just don't like it. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm saying well, that I'm, good. I'm coming in with an open. I, I might, I might still come to that conclusion. I'm just saying I'm not coming. I like, I'm really going to try guys. I'm really going to try. Appreciate it. Yeah. It. Put a lot of effort into this one, Adam. Jeez. You, you definitely don't try any of the other times. So <laughs> it's not like you're busy. Just kidding, anything, just kidding everyone. So. You... It's not like you're busy to watch, you know, few a, a few little flicks but they're fast and wonderful so you'll just have a great time in all your business you have they, you have three you have it you have like an hour a day so come on yeah and dedicate that to sam raimi please 
You got it. You got it. I can't wait. I'm excited. Nobody could see, but I, except for you two. But I was dancing as you were doing your spiel about Evil Dead. Ugh, it's... Yeah, I can't wait. Um, I'll do the little wrap-up thing. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so we just did Ellie Confident- Co- hmm. So we just did LA Confidential <laughs> and we got Evil Dead coming up next. Uh, let's find us in all the places where you get podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram and all those things. Uh, but until we get to, uh, to the Necronomicon, I'm Adam. I'm Britt. And I'm Joey. And we will see you next time for Evil Dead. Evil Dead.